This is Brandon M. Crooker, and you're listening to the Apostolic Theory Podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest with us. We have Brother Ezekiel Johnson. He, uh, he, he posts a lot. Um, on Twitter, uh, I follow him. You you should too. He's got a lot of great information and great content on there. Um, but today we have him with us to talk to us a little bit about something that he's very passionate about, and I believe that uh, the Apostolic Church should be passionate about too. So, uh, Brother Johnson, why don't you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you pastor, a little bit about your ministry, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. Well, sure. Thank you, Brother Kruger. And I'm very uh, honored for the uh, opportunity for this interview. Um, I pastor in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm originally from the state of Pennsylvania. Grew up there, went to school there. And uh, I then went to school at, at Texas Bible College in Houston, Texas. And that was back in 1990. So I'm dating myself a little bit there. But um, it's it's just been... Uh, a uh, blessed experience just to be able to be used of God in the uh, area of pastoring and and developing people's lives and really their understanding of uh, of some truths that we've come to know and uh, that's that's a, a passion of mine as you as you stated and uh, I just think that this is what the church is all about it's really about knowing what it is that we believe because there's just so many things that um that challenge that in our society mm. and ours really is a different day than uh the apostles uh than what they dealt with you know if you were talking about the um you know jesus it was all pretty much the same there wasn't a lot of division other than people trying to hold on to the to the uh, old testament law but you didn't have all of these subdivisions within uh, uh, Christendom, and we have that to deal with, and uh, it presents quite a challenge. But you know, the one thing that stands out is the fact that truth. I mean, it, it's a word that's bandered about by many, but really, um, when it's when it's actually tried and the fire is lit up under it, it's always going to produce the same uh, thing. You're not going to have um, you're not going to find something new. That shakes truth's foundation. It is what it is, and God's word has stand the test of time, and it shall continue. Absolutely. So why don't you, um, why don't we just roll into what you uh, have prepared for this specific session? Um, and I, I'm very excited about it, and, and I think that it's going to bless all of the listeners in a tremendous way. So why don't we just uh, go right ahead, right into uh, what we're going to be talking about. Okay, well, one of the things that fascinates me um, quite a bit is, of course, the writings of Jesus. But I, I like to, I think a lot of times, logic, um, sometimes we see that to a person with a lot of degrees, doctorates from this university to that university. I, I just don't believe that the word of God, uh, the Bible makes note of the fact that Peter and the rest of the apostles, uh, they they took note, people took note of them that they um, had been with Jesus. They weren't learned. They weren't uh, established in 
and their education. Having our education, of course, we need to have that. It's very important. But I think to see uh, understanding of Scripture and and deeper things of the Word of God to people that just from an academic standpoint have studied the Word of God, uh, there's another element to it that is, is so precious that we have found in really uh, trying to get a hold of apostolic truth um, that is revolutionary and it can change a person's mind, changes their life and certainly their eternity. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of go to, um, because in, in this whole um, study of soteriology, there is within that you're going to, it's going to encompass so many of the truths that we, um, that, that it's established or that, it, that it's based upon. There's a foundation to it that makes it uh, relevant and makes it something that we can draw. We can go back to scripture and draw from multiple sources, multiple places um, on those truths or the supports for that, those truths. In the book of John, I, I just like to just start there for a second. But John 14 is a tremendous uh, chapter. It, it's uh, really 14, 15, 16. This is Jesus parting. He's, um, he's leaving. He's getting his, his disciples prepared for that mentally and in many other ways. And he's giving them foundational truths. He's exposing himself to them in terms of who he is, his identity is front and center in in John 14. And I, it's a beautiful scripture. I, I, I love to, you know, if I could, I would do it even more if I could. I really liked when I have a chance to take this apart um, in services or in Bible studies to uh, my congregation because I think it's very important for, uh, for people to see that. In John chapter 14, I'll start at, at verse number... Um, Verse number four, Jesus says, and whither I go, you know the way. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? And so Jesus then stops on a dime and he turns what Thomas is thinking directional. And he really starts speaking of access because Jesus is baiting them into this discussion where he's going to reveal himself to them in such an astounding way. So. Jesus in verse number six says, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that really wasn't even in Thomas's thinking because he's thinking, where are you going? And then in, in verse number seven, um, I really like what Jesus does because it, when, you, when you actually read the word of God, many people, you know, from an academic standpoint, they like to, um, and, and not necessarily you know, our folks um, that, are, that have got hold of this truth. I just mean many times in academia, I, I remember many years ago, my father was talking with a Catholic priest and this Catholic priest, his take on the word of God was don't take it literal. We don't take most of that literal. We, you know, it's just a, it's a good uh, philosophy to kind of throw in to the mix of philosophies that we use to, you know, make our minds up about how we're going to do different things. When you take such a glim, uh, you know, view of the word of God and you don't allow it to speak with precision and relevancy, well, you can just, you can, you know, the Bible says there's a way that seemeth right to a man, but the ways thereof are destruction. Well, you're going to get that kind of thing when you don't allow the potency of the word of God 
to actually make inroads into your thinking and to the way that you live your life. So in John chapter 7 or 14 and verse number 7, he says, Jesus says, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And then he uses this word that I really like here, this this English word that we don't use many times in our vernacular today. But nonetheless, the meaning is very straightforward. He says, henceforth, you know him and have seen him. And the reason I, I like this particular verse is because of the fact that he separates two things. If you if you were just to say you have um, you have you have seen him, one may be able to extrapolate from that that he's talking about you know him. You know, it's and it's not really focused in on. But the fact that he says you know him, that's one thing. And then you've seen him. That's a separate thing. It's isolating that physical ability that we have, that sense that we have of sight. It's not talking about anything else but sight. And, of course, Philip picks up on that. And that's why Philip's question is probably a question that all of them could have asked. He says, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus, you know, has baited them into this discussion. And then he hits them with this this, he, he, he knows this question is coming, and he answers in such a profoundly shocking way. He says, have I not been so long time with you, Philip? And how sayest how say thou, show us the Father? Uh, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus begins to then, you know, open their eyes. They, they're seeing something here. He says, you've seen the Father when you've seen me. And that's that's an amazing thing, because what we're doing with this particular scripture, the disciples had the benefit of this teaching. They had the benefit of Jesus revealing himself in this teaching prior, just prior to his his passion and, of course, his resurrection. They had the benefit of all that. And so in the lead up to Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus gives the Great Commission. He's given it to some guys that he's already let know in no uncertain terms who he is. So you, you move down to verse number 10. He says, believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, the words I speak unto you. I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. And then I just want to move down to verse number, uh, verse number sixteen, where he talks about the, the Holy Ghost. And the word choice here is by no accident. He's playing on words, and Jesus is using this whole, um, you know, in, in the way that he talks, he he gives them something, and then he unwinds it or he unfolds it, so they can see, they have an understanding. So when Jesus speaks, you know, many times he's spoken dark sayings, he's spoken parables. This is his M.O. This is the way that the great God of the universe chose to reveal himself to man. Not always just straightforward with everybody, but sometimes he he says that he masks things or hid some, some things in terms of in his speech. But then when he got ready to reveal himself, he unfolds it in such a beautiful way where there can be no... Uh, misinterpretation as to what he's saying. And certainly that's the case here in verse number 16 through uh, verse number 18. 
He says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. He doesn't say person. He says another comforter. His words are designed to, to convey the message that he wants to make sure we receive. That he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So it's a spirit. Now he, he reveals what that comforter is. It's a spirit whom the world cannot receive. And here's why they can't, because they see him not, neither know him. See, once again, he's playing on those two things, knowing and seeing, knowing and seeing. Seeing is the relevancy of, of, of the now, uh, the fact that they, they're, they're looking him in the face as he's talking, as he's saying these things to him. And that becomes really relevant in the next uh, fr- next phrase here that he says, he, the next uh, next few uh, words that he says. He says, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you. Speaking of himself, and he's he's just unfolding, you know, the, the layers. He's let them see who he is and shall be in you. So that last stanza, he says, but you know him. The world doesn't know him because they can't see him. They, they can't receive him rather because they can't see him and neither do they know him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Who's dwelling with them? No one but Jesus. So he's talking in these word circles, but they're getting the point. And that's the point. They are getting the point. He's, you know, even if people today look at this and they don't grasp the point and they don't grasp what he's saying, these guys certainly did. It was for them. And so in verse number 18, he just takes all of the, uh, you know, the cloak and dagger, if you will, he takes all of that out of the picture. And now he just comes very clean with that, using the same word that he used previously in verse number 16. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And so he goes from talking about another comforter coming to saying that he's the one that's going to bring the comfort. Mm. And it's amazing things like that that uh, you see in scripture that Jesus really let his disciples know what was going on. They got the picture. And that's why when he, um, when he rose from the dead, one of the first things he says to Mary is go tell my disciples I'm risen. First of all, they need to know that, but also go meet me in the mountain. (laughs) That mountain meeting was very, very important. And that, that meeting was important because of the fact that, Jesus was going to convey a message to his disciples that they would get. And there has to be an outcome-based analysis that's done. You know, we do it in everything else. Uh, If there's a new uh, type of uh, treatment, I used to be in, um, uh, years ago, I had the mental health treatment center. You know, so if there is a new type of treatment that's done, well, there's going to be some outcome-based studies. So the people that go to that treatment, uh, we're going to see how it's affected them. Are they over their situation? If can it be can it be uh, detected in uh, percentages, or is there some kind of detectable way that we can um, determine if this is, has been effective or not? Well, I mean, when you look at what Jesus says to his disciples, and then what they do, and then they're never corrected, never chastised about it never told that they did the wrong thing. We have to assume logic dictates, uh, you know, 
um, just intellectual honesty dictates that we have this scenario where it's a pointed scenario. Jesus comes to the grave and everything is about this meeting. This meeting is the most important thing that he's going to do since he, you know, got up from the grave. And at that meeting, he tells his disciples, you know, in Matthew 28 and uh, 19, I'll probably start um, at verse number 17. But he tells his disciples as he's meeting them, and I like to say that he met with a mixed multitude of his own disciples because the Bible says that some of them believed him and some doubted, even though they were looking right at him. In verse number 16 of Matthew 28, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. He had appointed them to meet them in the mountain. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They're looking at him, and some worship, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and spake and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And then, of course, he says, Go ye therefore for that reason, based upon that reason. And teach all nations, baptizing them. You know, the baptism, he just kind of brings us into discussion as it's an assumption. It's assumed because Jesus had, his disciples were already baptized, as were John the Baptist's. And as a matter of fact, in John 4, it says that he had baptized more people than John the Baptist had baptized in his ministry. You know, and, but... This was in, this was something that John the Baptist God had him introduced to the to the scenario of of uh, of repentance, but here's Jesus adding his name to baptism. Before baptism was in no one's name. You look at Matthew three and uh, five and six. There's nobody's names mentioned. It's that's not what it's for. Um, Acts nineteen and verse number four. Paul lets us know pretty succinctly that it's a baptism of repentance. In other words, the act of repenting in John's ministry encompassed baptizing. A person was baptized as they confessed their sins as they were going down in the water. Um, so here Jesus adds his name to baptism. He adds a name to baptism. But something that was relevant with the disciples that had the benefit of the teaching, his parting message as he was leaving he gave him that message about who the father was how he made himself synonymous with the father and how he made himself synonymous with the holy ghost so when he says this to them go ye therefore and uh teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost you know and i i like to then bring out to people and verse number 20 he then talks about all the other stuff the main teaching was about baptism. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. But the first thing and first and foremost is getting this part of it right. Understanding that the baptism had to be right and why the name was so important. So that that we see that even in Acts 8 when Philip is preaching to the, the people in Samaria. The Bible says distinctly, and I like the way Luke writes that, you know, Luke being the most prolific writer, you know, in terms of his ability to dip into history and bring that to the fore. 
uh, of the Gospels. He, he does a, an incredible job. He wasn't there, but he did his research. And as a matter of fact, the pageants that we have for Jesus's birth, many times we use the material that, that Luke uh, belabored to give us. He did an incredible job of that. But also he picks that detail out in Acts chapter 8, and he says basically that the people in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, when they had heard about the name of Jesus and, and about the kingdom, they were baptized in his name. Just a remarkable thing. Because the name is, is important, that understanding of how that is incorporated into our salvation. It's so, so important. And that's the, the thrust of, of what I'm I'm all about. That is trying to uh, make relevant and really to wind back some of the teachings that have become prolific in our society. You know, it's it's um, in terms of of uh, how how a person is saved. You know, of course, Romans ten nine is the favorite place that many people like to go, but it's a shallow um, uh, interpretation of the word of God because there's so many relevant factors that are not considered that must be considered. For one, Acts chapter um, 19, and, you know, one through six, where Paul meets some disciples of John the Baptist and actually goes through, you know, almost word for word, what is said in, in Acts chapter two, verse 38 by Peter. He's still sticking with the same message, the same exact way of being saved. But history lets us know that the book of Romans was completed about the time of Acts chapter 18. So a year after he writes the book of Romans, which includes the 10th chapter and verse number 9 and 10, he still is baptizing in the same way. He still is converting souls in the same way. And there's there's been no difference. There's just a, an incredibly huge misinterpretation of what Paul stated. You know, and I, I say that to some people, I say you have to be fair to the writer. The writer is writing. He's covering subjects. The Bible was not written with verses and chapters. So when you take something that Paul says... You have to understand the implications of that. If you if you were to say that in Romans 10, 9, where it says that if thou shalt confess uh, with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you take that and say this is the way to be saved, you're negating everything else that's happened before. And you have to work feverishly, if you're going to be an apologist for that kind of uh, thinking, you have to work feverishly to destroy the different elements of what Peter said and what Paul did. And after a while, it just does not make sense. You cannot uh, trample on everything that's been done there. You know, once again, you have to bring logic into the picture. And I like to tell people that uh, the, the divisions of the New Testament, I like this. If I was to divide them into three, it would be Jesus telling what's going to happen. And then the acts of the apostles, what did happen? And then the epistles, what to do about what happened? Because they're teaching people how to live for God. You look at those epistles, there's very much practical uh, 
everyday living, um, you know, morals, getting, uh, you know, no stealing. You know, it, there's a lot of things that uh, Paul is talking to these uh, these paganistic societies that he's kind of dropped into where he's teaching and winning souls and he's teaching them how to live their life. But also he's explaining what has happened to them in much more greater detail. You know, Acts never gets into some of the detail that uh, Romans gets into that explains about baptism, explains about how it's so interconnected to the death of Christ that you just can't, you simply cannot decouple it. There's no way that you can extract it and say it's a separate thing. And so much that happens in Christendom uh, to refute what is plain as day with examples galore in the book of Acts of people being saved, the, the attempts to, uh, to, uh, to, to make that irrelevant. Every, in just about every case, people, there's a, there's a disingenuous um, attempt to e- equate things falsely. And I'll just give you one example. When you look at baptism, a lot of people like to say that baptism is a work. Well, a work of what? What exactly is that? Well, when Paul speaks of works, he's speaking, of course, against the Judaizers. That's people that were Pharisees, um, Sadducees, and different ones that came into the church. And they came with their with their hangups, their preconceived notions and ideas about the law still being in effect and needing to be applied, you know, in earnest to anybody coming in. As a matter of fact, that that whole thing was the uh, the, the the premise behind uh, Paul and Barnabas basically storming to Jerusalem to a conference in, in Acts 15 to kind of get some things settled because he was winning people, and then he had these other zealous people that you know were Pharisee and origin and. Uh, the Judaizers, more or less, coming down and going after all the places that he had gone and twisting their thinking and making them think that they're not saved because they haven't brought elements of the law in. And Galatians, he deals with that a lot. But, you know, when people equate baptism to the law, you can't do that. You're crossing dispensations. There's nothing in the law that has baptism in it. The mikvah is not baptism, totally different. But when you when you bring baptism and you try to extract it from from the dispensation of grace and put it into uh, the, the dispensation of the law, you are desperate. That's a desperate act. It's a desperate move because when you start looking in the book of Romans, you saw you see how Paul, Romans, Colossians, and other places where Paul is putting you know, he's tying inextricably baptism to the death of Christ. He says in, in uh, Romans 6 and 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ. I like the way that's termed. I like the way that's phrased on purpose, intentionally, deliberately. We're baptized into Christ. You know, people like to say, uh, you know, the, the common vernacular is, we're accepting the Lord as your personal savior. Well, as you accept him by doing what he said, when you're baptized into, when you're baptized in Jesus name, you're baptized into Christ. 
And then Paul says, you know, that we're actually baptized into his death. So he says, no, you're not. As many of you as of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death. And that's such an important point because now the death factor actually means something. It actually matters. Now you've brought that into my salvation. Uh, a lot of people, they look at salvation as a, as a magic thing. Is there a scripture that says how I'm saved? And Romans 10, 9 is almost used as a magic wand. But it's not, it, you, you can't do that when you're, when there's, there's an elemental uh, part of our salvation. Something that's a part attached to us, something that was done, that has to be undone. And then we can talk about salvation. The thing that has to be undone is sin. And when you have something addressing the sin factor, that is the death of Christ. He died. And I like to, to go into this this whole um, understanding that, um, that Acts chapter 2 and 24 kind of brings out. He says that it was impossible that he should be holden of death. The reason that he, it was impossible is because he had a sinless life, and the death that he um, that he died, he had to get up from. But that's he left that death for us to then be baptized into, and that's what Paul's talking about. He says, "When we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into His death. We get that benefit, and believing doesn't do that. Confessing doesn't do that." baptism does it was designed by by god in that way and paul says in in verse number five of, of chapter six of romans that we are planted in the likeness of his death we can't physically you know t you know be be killed or or die like that because then you know if, if it's if if we take on that there's a second death that we face our death isn't good enough to pay for our sins in other words the second death being hell is where we'd have to pay for it. And it's going to be for eternity. But the likeness of his death is what baptism is. And it's what God has set in place. So we don't have to die. This is what God has set in place so that we can then um, in the likeness of his death, be planted with him, gain the benefit of his death. And then also take on his righteousness being the life, the sinless life that he lived. Now that's attached to us, and we look at uh, when God looks at us, He sees righteousness, not our own, but Christ, because we've taken, on, we've left our old man, we've left our sins there, and we've taken on Him. You know, also in the book that Peter that Peter um, wrote a few years later, quite a few years later after Pentecost, he still beating the same drum. He's still marching to the same tune. He's the guy that, you know, is responsible for those same words of, of, of Acts 2.38, where he says, you know, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And in the book that he writes, he says, likewise, and he, of course, gets, um, he does a comparison to uh, Noah and the flood and how eight souls were saved. He says, likewise, the like figure rather, uh, baptism also doth now save us. Not, and then in parentheses, not the cleansing of the filth of the flesh, 
but it's an answer to God of a good conscience. Whose good conscience? Not our good conscience, but it's an answer to God of a good conscience because we've taken on his righteousness. And then after parentheses, it says, by the resurrection of Christ, the proof, the crowning proof that Jesus was sinless was what Acts chapter 2 and 24 says. It was impossible for death to hold him. He had to get up because death was only uh, enacted as a death was only enacted as a punishment for sin. We go back to the garden to see that the Bible says in Genesis 2 and 17, he mentions the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, the day that you eat of that, and sometimes I wonder if that was prophetic in God saying that to them. But he said, the day in which you eat of that fruit, you'll surely die. One thing we know didn't happen is Adam and Eve didn't just drop over that day. But the reason they didn't drop over that day, because death is the penalty for sin. But the reason they didn't drop over that day is because the Bible lets us know that he put skins on them. Something died that day. Something, some animal died. And uh, we we don't get a, a, a full um, uh, reading out of of the 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 sacrificial um, um, the, the sacrificial um, elements of salvation, you know, using a substitutional sacrifice. We don't get that full picture from that story. Not quite yet. As a matter of fact, the two brothers, when they, um, when Cain kills Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was not, he didn't use a blood sacrifice. But we, we still don't find the importance of the blood sacrifice until the law is being given. And in Leviticus 17.11, we get this incredible picture, incredible principle that's laid out. The life of all flesh is in the blood. And I have given thee the blood upon the altar. It is the for, for the atonement to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that makes atonement for sin. And then we understand why God could accept Cain's sacrifice. And we understand that that death factor, substitutional death and sacrificial death, that's a part of God's plan of salvation. That's why he didn't interrupt when uh, when Satan was going after Eve. He just he didn't interrupt it. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He had a plan. And uh we see that um, that that death factor was so important that we get that death that we're able to apply his death to our lives. You know, he says um, in Hebrews chapter two and verse number fourteen. I find that a fascinating scripture because he talks about how he how God won the power of death back from Satan. Bible says, for as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, meaning that we're, we're made of flesh and blood. He also came in that same fashion, that same form, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And uh, through that purpose, you know, Satan thought he was getting rid of Jesus. He was going to take him out. But Jesus knew that Satan couldn't resist with that power, having the power of death. And, you know, in that he he put the mechanisms in place for Jesus' death, you know, uh, put it in the heart of Judas to go to the priests and for them to 
work out that arrangement where they would get Jesus at night. And of course, those events would work into his death. But because Satan had a hand in it, he lost the power of death because he enacted it on somebody who was guiltless, someone that was sinless. And uh, but it's it's a powerful thing um, just just to um, to be able to share the truth of God's word um, yeah. with with so many people because there's so many different angles people come come um, at this from um, and it's um, the word of God it, it's 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 incredible there's so many different ways to prove that what we're doing what was said on the day of Pentecost is right. There's ways to go into the to the epistles to prove that. There's ways to go into the Old Testament to prove that. And uh, it's just, it's an incredible thing to be a part of that. And uh, just excited to do it. Amen. And Twitter provides a, a, a incredible uh, platform to do that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I find it interesting that there are groups of people in Christianity who will try to discard uh, the message on the day of Pentecost when Peter gets up and he he's saying, "This is this is how you, what must I do to be saved?" And he tells them, "Repent, be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift." of the Holy Ghost. And that wasn't the first time that he preached that message and, and that he got the exact same response. And then yeah. there are people who are trying to, to, well, maybe Peter, I would trust the words of Jesus over the words of Peter. Well, Peter walked with Jesus, right? He he yeah. was taught by Jesus. Do you think that Peter just, just maybe he misunderstood what Jesus was had taught him? And No. Absolutely not. The message that Peter got up and preached on the day of Pentecost was the same message that Jesus instilled in him. Well, why was Peter? Why was Peter the one that stood up, and why wasn't any of the other disciples? Well, I mean, that's this. These are questions. You know, it's all there. It's actually all there. And in other areas of life, other disciplines in life, people would take the time and actually dig that out, and would be applauded for doing so. But when it comes to the Word of God, we this is what I've found, um, Brother Kruger. I've found that people um, are overwhelmingly influenced by people. That is to say, if there is somebody that has a history, reputation, you know, tradition, you know, the guy may have lived, might be one of the church fathers, quote unquote, um, after the, you know, the, the New Testament church, of course, after the first century. And because this guy you know, said something, it's endured all this time and it's unchallengeable in some people's minds. And, it, you know, that is just as strong as a person that says, my grandmother was a good Catholic and she was a good lady and I don't believe she's in hell, so I can't accept anything else that's different from what she believed or mm-hmm. that she did. And it's the tie into people that I find more, because, you know, logically, I mean, honestly, you know, just in answering your question, you just said, I mean, we, we both can go back there and look at Matthew 16. Jesus put that there on purpose. He set Peter up to do that on purpose. He wanted Peter to say that. He knew Peter was impetuous and he would come forth with what was the top thing that's on his mind. And Jesus says to him, hey, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. 
In other words, your thinking, your intellect, you haven't looked at things and analyzed and come up with this. He says, this was given to you by God, divine inspiration. And so he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church, you know, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this, of course, let me just, because uh, I kind of dove into that. I'll just go back and give a little background. Uh, but Jesus tells us, as his disciples, he says, um, who do men say that I am? But it's a setup. And they start saying different ones and all that. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of, of the living God. And Jesus wanted that answer. He, he used that situation to get that answer out of Peter and let Peter know that you are the rock. You're the, I'm going to build my church upon this foundational understanding. And the gates of hell is not going to prevail against it. And he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Peter got the keys to the kingdom. And it was by no accident that he was the one that Jesus says, when you're when you're converted, strengthen your brother. Because he's going to be the one that's going to be the spokesman. And they all line up behind him. And he was the natural thing. Uh, you know, and so by no accident, he's the one that's given that message over the day of Pentecost. And, and everybody is, you know, mesmerized by that. And the ones that receive it, they didn't just say a sinner's prayer. They were baptized. And so I think sometimes even the physical act of baptism, because it's a physical act, it can be trivialized. And it is. People trivialize it uh, and they, they think, well, yeah, you need to do it. But then they'll assign their own reasoning to it uh, because it's a it's a way it's an outward expression of a, of an inward change. You know, and the Bible never gives these kind of explanations for baptism. The only explanation is given really it's when when Peter is baptized, you know, given the command to be baptized, he says it's for the remission of sins, you know. And so where people try to assign other things to baptism, it's a disingenuous attempt to to uh, discredit it. It's yeah. it's a losing argument. And like you said, the people that go back and say, I'd rather obey Jesus than obey Peter. That is intellectually just garbage because we you can't have peter as jesus's main person that would show an incompetent an incompetency in jesus to pick somebody who is just going to completely blow the thing do we actually think god is that that arbitrary or that unintelligent i mean there's some uh there, there's some logic i think that we have to apply to the word of god because god certainly expects us to use the brains that he's given us. And uh, when you when you're in denial mode, you will do whatever you can to fight against what to me in the word of God is is just undeniable. Um, I, I talk about the book of Acts because, you know, in the book of Acts is the only place where if there is a theory of salvation, it's tried out. You actually see people doing it. You know, there's this this um, this approach that I take to scripture, especially scripture on salvation. There are some scriptures that are foundational in nature and principles in nature, meaning that they tell what God has done. You don't do anything about that. This is just what God has done, what He set up. For instance, I'll throw one of those scriptures out. It would be uh, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
in that there's no directive. There's no actionable um, um, thing that we can do. We hear the word believe, but that's a subjective term because it needs instruction. You go even to, um, uh, you know, other scriptures that talk about God. You know, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. These are foundational things. They're, they're principle, more or less principles in nature. But then when you look at um, other scriptures, I think there are some other scriptures that are more or less. I've, I've done things in, in healthcare and mental health many years ago. I had an ambulance company as well. One of the things that we had to do is policies and procedures. So you have your principles. That's the way things go. It's the chassis, if you will, that everything's built upon. And then your policies are things, these are our ideas or our goals. But then your procedures are the exact steps, the instructions of how to actually accomplish that policy. And, I, you know, you look at scriptures like when he's writing Romans 10, 9. That is certainly a policy scripture. It's not telling somebody the steps you must take to be saved because it's coming on the heels or really uh, the ninth chapter, the 10th chapter, the 11th chapter of Romans, if you go to the very first verse of each one of those chapters, you'll see Paul pouring his heart out. He says in one of them, if I could be accursed, that is go to hell myself, that Israel might be saved, I would do it. He's so burdened for his people. But then in the middle of that, in Acts, in Romans uh, 10 and 9, he alludes to salvation, but it's, to, it's still germane to those people that have rejected Jesus. In order for you to get baptized, even think about any of those other things, you have to first confess that he's Lord when you've denied him, even said he should be crucified. Um, and then you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. That is a big thing, because if God raised him from the dead, that means that he is God. I mean, there's some things that are indicative of, uh, you know, of what Paul is, is saying that a person in that state or in that frame of mind has to do. But it by, by no means does it negate what uh, Paul did, what was done in the book of Acts, and certainly what Paul did when he met the disciples of, of John the Baptist in Ephesus in, the, in chapter 19 of, of Acts. I mean, he asked them some pointed questions. He says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? So many people like to emphasize believe and put believe up there and make it the new baptism. But no, he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? Suggesting that it's a possibility, a great possibility that you have not. And so when they say they haven't heard whether it be a Holy Ghost, his next question, since baptism is not important to a lot of people, why does he go there? He does. He asks them, how were they baptized? When he finds out, the next thing he's talking about is rebaptizing. Not about accepting the Lord as your personal Savior. So I think a lot of people are off base, and it's because the influence of other people. When you see a big crowd of people in a church, they all can't be wrong is what our mind tells us. And too many people will stop there rather than investigating like they would in some other disciplines in life. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times... The people that, and I want to be very careful with the way that I word this, but to be fair, they've been duped into believing, you know, these people or these um, these men and, and women who are 
um, you know, preaching this doctrine of salvation aside from digging into the scripture in its entirety. And so when they do um, get duped, uh, you know, they, it, it becomes easier for them to just say, okay, well, I just accept Jesus Christ as my personal savior and that's all I have to do and I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, the challenge there's there's nowhere to come back. Um, there's it's hard to 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 fight scripture, and it's easier to grab a scripture. I call them drive-by Christians. You know, they see a scripture, a verse, they grab it and run with it. Don't even try to find out the contextual understanding. Don't even try to dig mm-hmm. into that because maybe that will make them lose the footing on which they stand. And when you get into an argument and the basis of the argument is just to be right, that's a natural thing with all of us. It's, you know, you learn people and people not naturally, if you get an argument, you, you'll polarize many times without knowing unless you're, you're realizing what you're doing. Sometimes it's just a matter of being right. And, and, and uh, that when that comes into the picture, it's hard to really move content forward. That's why I think, um, and I've seen some things that, Brother Bernard has done in the past some debates and stuff like that. I think a debate with a good, established, disciplined rules, I think they're very beneficial because it allows people to hear what is being said, the reasons behind the assertive statements, uh, the supportive uh, doctrine, uh, the supportive scriptures, where they're found, the context in which they're written, all those things work to help, I think, advance the ball forward. And, you know, I, 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 I've been encouraged by in the past looking at some of the debates that he did. I, I like that style. He's, he's a very respectful of the other side, but he comes to the table with such a basis of knowledge of scripture. And it, it just really wins the day, right. you know, when everything's said and done. So really the, the biggest question um, for all of our listeners would be, this can a person be as saved today as they were in the book of acts without following the same pattern i i can't see how that is even possible because you know um i think what's going on is the fact that this the pattern that he gave the the epistles uh paul and those epistles and even peter they, they tie it into the death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Paul does that quite succinctly um, in, in Romans chapter 6. And Peter, of course, ties it to the resurrection in the book that he wrote, 1 Peter 3, 21. He ties it, you know, baptism's saving ability. He just goes there with it. He says it's saving ability of baptism. But we have to break down the elements because what saves us is the fact that the sin has been eradicated sin has been removed but what removes sin the only way our sins are removed is that there is a death to pay for them god never stops that process god never changes that process god's you know is bound to that process he says that it takes death for sins to be removed and that's why he came to die he came in flesh and blood to die as to live as a man to defeat sin in the flesh and then present himself a spotless lamb and that death, then we can take on. But there's nothing else to give us the power of that death. 
other than baptism. When when Paul says that, you know, I, I've been and what happens is I get stuck in certain scriptures. I find like, wow, this is treasure trove of information here that perhaps I didn't even see before. But Romans six and three is just a fascinating scripture to me right now because he says when you're baptized, you're baptized into Christ, and that's into his death. There's no other way we get into his death. Jesus says in John 3, 5, he says, except a man, or John 3, 3, he says, except a man be born again. Why would you have to be born again? That was very strange language to Nicodemus. But Jesus was projective in his speech. Many things that he said were seeds that would then unfold when the church age came to be. And so he says, you have to be born again. Well, something has to die. The old man has to die. Jesus never mentioned any of those words. But the seed was enough to say it. And, and when you start getting to the, to the Gospels, or not the Gospels, but the Epistles, you then see as he's talking, give more explanation about the origin of our salvation. In other words, things that we did initially, you know, when we're saved, he starts to, to put some meat behind that. And what you then find out is the old man died, and then you're born new. If any man be in, in, in Christ, he's a new creature. There's the born again. And it's a seed that Jesus said way back when. You have to be born again. Nicodemus had no clue. But then when you see those epistles begin to break down the entry point, baptism, it's into his death. And you start to see your new creature in Christ. These things just kind of flow together so beautifully. And so, no, I don't think it's ever changed. I don't think it can change because you can't have an um, interdispensational change of the message. That just makes no sense. Unless they're trying to say that at some point we entered a different dispensation, then they'd have to bring a lot of scripture to prove that. But I, I think that that argument falls short because God's still filling people with the Holy Ghost. Right. And there is an Acts chapter 2 and verse number 39 that really blows a hole in a lot of other theories that talk about some new fangled message. I preach a message that says, when did the message change? <laughs> you know, Paul sealed it. When in Galatians 1 and 8 and 9, he kind of repeats himself and says, if anybody preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Now, this, the, the Galatian church that he established was on his first missionary journey. And that would have been from um, Acts chapter 12 to 15. So he makes a statement about there can be no other message preached. And he, he, he then in Acts number chapter 19, if we were still guessing as to what Paul was preaching, Acts chapter 19, he's preaching the same thing as preached on the day of Pentecost, 26 to 8 years later. And uh, so in light of that, there really can be no other message because this is a beautiful plan of God that takes a lifetime to get to the bottom of because there's just so much that just explodes and expands as you're digging into this truth. Wow. Well, brother, I just want to thank you for your time, and I'm sure the listeners will appreciate the time, the study, and the effort that has gone into this session. Um, tremendous, absolutely incredible information, incredible uh, resource for people who are growing uh, as Christians or people who don't quite understand maybe why we believe what we believe and and this has just been i mean wow (laughs) brother this is this is good stuff i wish we could i wish we had a whole nother hour to talk about it 
because it is that it's that important. Um, so I just want to thank you very much for the time that you've invested in this episode on this specific topic. I believe people will be blessed and encouraged by it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. This podcast is made possible because of listeners like you who are willing to bridge the gap. We now have a sponsorship program on our Anchor website in which you can become a monthly sponsor of $1, $5, or $10 a month. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook.